So this morning, I feel like Neo surely felt when he met Morpheus for the first time in the movie The Matrix. And this thought popped into my head rather um, quickly and unexpectedly. You know, he uh, felt unsettled. He felt confused. He felt looking for answers. And Morpheus, I think, who wears sunglasses inside during a rainstorm, I had to go back and check on this, so maybe he's not the best person for us to listen to. He tells Neo, Keanu Reeves, what he's thinking. He says, what do you, what you know you can't explain, but you feel it. He says, you felt it your entire life that there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there, like a splinter in your mind driving you mad. Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about those dysfunctional splinters in our political institutions that drive Americans mad and ideas for fixing them. And in this week's episode, we are going to enter the matrix with our co-host, Lee Drutman, in an excellent piece that he's written to find the answers to what makes American democracy work. I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. I'm Julia Azari. I'm an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. And I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America and creator of Today's Matrix. Welcome, guys. And I'm not, I'm, I must confess, I'm not a big sci-fi guy. And I've only seen The Matrix like twice but or once maybe, but it really seared into my mind for some reason. And it came back. I haven't thought about this movie in a decade plus. And then I'm reading your essay, Lee, and it's an excellent essay. I highly recommend it to the readers. It will be in the show notes. And as I'm reading it, it occurs to me that it's very, um, it's actually very appropriate because what you do in this essay is that you help to open our eyes to our politics and to different ways of thinking about the, our politics. And it's amazing how clearly some things come into focus when you think about politics in a certain way. So I'm not going to reveal anymore. I'm not going to give any spoilers here. I'm just going to turn it over to you and, and ask you to give us a quick overview of the uh, of the essay. Yeah, so it, it's an essay that's new in the uh, New American Purpose magazine, uh, one of these great uh, journals of ideas and, and essays and such that, that uh, populate the small but uh, loyal followings, hopefully. Uh, so... Th- Basic idea of of this essay is something that's kind of been rattling around in my mind for a while, which is that uh, having participated in a lot of conversations about how to fix American democracy with quotes around fix, uh, it just seems to me that there's sort of this proliferation of visions of what democracy ought to look like. And... All of those visions have different fundamental assumptions about how democracy works and I guess what the problem is. So I, I kind of tried to take uh, the what, what I thought was re- really the essence of these different visions and the sort of underlying assumptions and kind of try to simplify them in the hopes that some level of simplification would bring clarity. And you know, I, I did what every self-respecting social scientist tries to do, which is to find a a two-by-two matrix that somehow explains the world. So here's the one that I hit upon, and and I wish we had sort of a a Blackboard feature on podcasts that would kind of 
take the uh, uh, some somehow get into people's brains and allow them to to see a, a blackboard in their in their minds. But I'll uh, I'll try to do my best with that. Okay, so on uh, one dimension of this matrix is a question of uh, well, actually, I should stop and take a fundamental premise that democracy is fundamentally about conflict in the sense that democracy is about elections and elections are about conflict because what else would elections be about if the contestants in an election say it doesn't matter uh, who you vote for because we all agree, then that's not really democracy, is it? Uh, So contestants in elections have to have disagreements. They have to structure conflicts uh, and elections can sort of decide among competing visions, potentially. So there's, I think, two questions if you take that democracy is fundamentally about conflict. First is who defines those conflicts? And I think there are kind of two visions of that in the sort of broader American political democracy thought reform tradition, which one is that political parties should define and structure the conflicts. Uh, and you know, second is that individual leaders should transcend partisan politics to structure in those conflicts. Uh, and then the second question is, uh, how do elections resolve those conflicts? And one view is that elections should provide mandates and they should directly resolve those conflicts. Uh, and another view is that elections should indirectly resolve those conflicts by selecting representatives who kind of can then negotiate amongst themselves to bring forward the kind of values and and interests that the public sends them to represent, and that that's a a better way to do things. So if you kind of take those two dimensions, um, and we'll start with uh, a question of whether uh, conflicts should be defined by political parties or individual leaders. So start with uh, a political part, or actually we'll start with individual leaders, uh, which is sort of an anti-partisan view. And if we think that they should be directly resolved, we wind up with what I call great leaderism, which is the idea that you know we should pick a president who then you know can really just put forward a vision for the country and president should have tremendous powers to lead and and is the one unifying force because it's the only person elected by the entire country. And, you know, that's the idea of a really strong president. If we think that we should elect individual leaders who then, uh, but election should really be indirect, uh, we're working in a vision of what I call eliteocracy, which, uh, you know, I think is actually pretty close to the framers' vision uh, and kind of creeps up in this sort of like quasi-libertarian vision that I think is what Mike Lee was kind of getting at when he said that ranked democracy is is a problem, which is the idea that, you know, we should have elections, but like those elections shouldn't really be partisan and they shouldn't they should they shouldn't really uh, have all that much to do with what happens. It's sort of a very just, you know, elections, but the real work happens, you know, outside of elections and there are no political parties, just 
sort of enlightened individuals who can preserve liberty and, and make the right policies. It's, it's also a view that I think is, is very common in the progressive era, although the progressive era was very conflicted. So if we move over and say that uh, that political parties should structure the conflicts, which is what I believe, then we have two potential views. One is simple majoritarianism, which is... Uh, might be familiar to some of our listeners as responsible party government, Westminster style government, in which elections should give parties clear mandates and then they should govern uh, based on that. And uh, in the essay, I describe uh, some of the problems with that vision, which we can go into uh, it in more depth if, if we want to, uh, but basically that the promise of accountability and responsibility actually doesn't wind up working because it depends on strong partisanship, which undermines accountability. Uh, and the the vision that I prefer, and I think is the best form of uh, democracy, is what I call complex majoritarianism, uh, in which we have strong political parties, but uh, elections do not confer direct mandates but rather set up a, a more representative uh, situation, which allows for more fluid bargaining. And that's what I would consider to be the core of proportional multi-party democracy. So with that, I've said a lot. So I want to hear what you all have to say. Thanks for giving us that quick overview. And I want to start here by kind of taking a step back and going back to what you mentioned at the beginning which is this idea of democracy. And I want to ask and I want to and I want to press a little bit on like what exactly is democracy? And I think to to speak to and I can't I'm not I can't read his mind but Senator Lee when you when he speaks about ranked democracy and I've mentioned this time and time again on this podcast but this there's an idea of of uh, the Polybian cycle, this idea that you constantly in, in, in polities and in, in societies where you start off with a monarchy and then you, you slowly each form of government, a monarchy, an aristocracy or a democracy descends into its more negative um, kind of uh, existence or form. And this is a very classical notion. And this is because they're inherently unstable and then they had been inherently unstable governments up until, and I think and this is not that we got it perfect, but until the framers cracked the code and got us out of that cycle. And democracy is just one form of rule. It's, a, it's rule of the people versus rule of a person or rule of a few people, but it's still ultimately rule. And in our system, you know, it's a democratic republic. I don't want to, I mean, we can debate republic versus democracy all we want. But I think the fundamental point is, at least as I see it, is that politics is about making collective decisions on the basis of equality. That's what self-government's all about. And you have to have an opportunity to do that. And when you disagree with, and you have to have a place, and when you disagree with one another, you have to negotiate. And so I see democracy in very architectonic terms, I guess, or, or our democratic republic, our system. I think about a space where an activity takes place. I think it's very adverbial. I, I think about individual people coming together to negotiate. And it's not about building widgets and, and, and other things. And if I want, you know, and I'm just thinking about it 
as you were speaking, Lee, I pulled up in front of me and my pronunciation is terrible. But if you think about negotiation, right, which means you're bringing about something by discussion. Implicit in this is the idea that people disagree. That's why they're negotiating. And negotiate means you do something, right? You do something in the course of talking or speaking with one another. And it's the opposite. It's from Latin, which means done in the course of business. And the opposite of, I mean, it's essentially not leisure. It's not rule. It's activity. And so, I mean, how does... How do you see democracy and how does my kind of understanding of it in architectonic and adverbial terms, you know, jive with that? Or does that or am I just like way out in left field and and I need to kind of come back home? Yeah, come on. Come on home. Come on home, James. Um, we, we, we've we've missed you. No. Uh, so, OK, so let's start with the, this idea of of democracy is inherently unstable uh, and, you know, I should add that one of the key points of this essay is that I, I'm talking about liberal democracy and I kind of break up the idea of liberalism and democracy as kind of separate but yoked concepts, which, you know, we describe democracy as, you know, a sort of system of elections premised on equality. Liberalism is, you know, basically an idea that every individual should have fundamental rights uh, that include, you know, it, when yoked to to democracy, include participation in democracy. And I think liberalism and democracy support each other in the sense that it's very hard to sustain a democracy without a, a sense of the the dignity and value of every individual uh, as you know in a democratic system able to participate equally. But it's equally hard to maintain liberalism without a democracy to ensure that everybody has equal participation in power. And in many ways, these values can fundamentally be in tension with each other in that you know, liberalism has a tendency towards individual rights, whereas democracy has a tendency towards collective responsibilities and it's very challenging to sometimes maintain the balance between individual liberty and collective obligations because those two don't always align. And the challenge, I think, is when one overwhelms the other. And I mean, democracy can quickly become illiberal in the sense that, you know, is Hungary a democracy? They have elections, but there's a crackdown on political opposition. And at some point, it just becomes authoritarianism. Uh, and, you know, that's what I worry about in some of the views that put too much power in particular leaders. Um, you know, on the other hand, liberalism, you know, can undermine democracy in the sense that if there's too much focus on individual rights and not enough on, on collective uh, responsibility and, and negotiation and compromise, uh, it, it becomes impossible to do anything. And inevitably, there's a, there's a backlash and, uh, and, a, and a need to have somebody take authority. And you know, so, so this is a real tension. And I think you know, there was a period in you know, post- uh, World War II, in which we, you know, a lot of countries, including the U.S., got the 
balance more or less right for a period. Uh, but I think we uh, have are starting to lose that balance uh, in in the U.S. as well as in some other countries. And you know, I, I do think that the, in a sense that the fundamental inside, I think, of the framers when you talk about them cracking the code was the idea that institutions can kind of find ways to, to balance these competing impulses and getting the institutions right means that you can essentially uh, think that challenge broadly is that you have two concepts, liberalism and democracy, that you know, fundamentally work together uh, and reinforce each other, but only if they balance each other. And there's a lot of architectural metaphors in the in the uh, Federalist Papers. And you know the the key to to if you take an architectural metaphor, right? I mean, there's a lot of balance and tension in any building, and so you need to get that right. And if you lose the balance because you've you've built the building wrong, it will topple over much more easily under, you know, harsh conditions. And I, I feel like that's the challenge that we're facing is that we're facing some harsh conditions. And, you know, the the institutions that we have are are kind of not really up to the task and they need some some renovation, some girding. Uh, and, and we've done that periodically as the conditions have changed in the course of our political history. And I, I think we need to do that again. So I want to break in here to kind of talk about democracy in a different way or through a different lens. The way I tend to think about democracy, which is somewhat shaped, I guess, by taking democratic theory with, with Ian Shapiro in grad school, though I wouldn't say my view is identical to the stuff he's written about, but but it does make you start thinking about democracy in, in a more kind of outcome-oriented way and in a way that... It makes you think about the conditions of people's actual lives. And I've thought a lot about this over the last year and through the specifically through the Trump era about this idea of, you know, what policy or government is doing to people and doing to their doing to their lives. Right. Do people feel like they're they're being forced to live under conditions that they didn't choose and wouldn't have chosen? And I remember that feeling being very being very acute in the Trump era about, you know, these policies are going to happen and there's not a lot that can be done about them. And they're targeting people, you know, they're targeting groups of people. And that really being feeling like, I don't actually think we have talked enough about the real threats to democracy from this most recent era, maybe ongoing era. Um, and I really think a lot about that, that on the one hand, we can talk abstractly about the resolution of conflict or about who is who is driving the conflict or the balance between democracy and liberalism. And on the other hand, we have the question of do people feel like they have control over the forces of power in their lives? And that, I think, is where we come back to again and again that American democracy isn't working very well, even as we can point to instances in which the institutions might be functioning along the dimensions that we as scholars might identify. And that I think is really the challenge. And there's there's a related challenge that's quite long standing and that brought us into, as I'm kind of looking at your matrix here, <laughs> Lee, um, I was thinking a lot about this great leaders portion of the matrix because 
because I'm teaching presidency this semester and I'm really trying to draw my students' attention to the idea that the fact that the president is kind of the focal point is the person who's supposed to do something and kind of have this personal leadership that's separate from party and from other collective institutions, that that evolved and evolved in response not just to presidents being ambitious or wanting to increase their power, but the reason that they were actually able to do it is because the inst- the other institutions, the more localized and parochial institutions in American politics, were not able to address major national issues. So you get these moments time and again um, with you know, you have the Civil War and slavery, you have the tariff in the 19th in the late 19th century, you have the New Deal, and the, you know, the Great Depression, you have these moments where you actually need the national government, and no one is really positioned to lead that, to lead in a national way other than, other than the president. And so you get this great leader conception of democracy that, that grows out of the mismatch between the institutions and the problems. And this is a kind of contingent piece of American political history. I haven't thought about how it might play out in other, in other contexts, but that to me seems to be the ultimate kind of question as we think about democracy is how much does it allow people to really have control over their lives? And I think the, the American story has been one of ebb and flow, but also one in which people without, a lot of means, and certainly African Americans, and in many cases women, have not had a lot of control over their lives. And that's that's just a fundamental flaw of democracy, even when the institutions are working. And that's, so it's from this much, I think, thicker conception of what democracy can be, and more outcome-oriented conception of democracy is where where I start this conversation. Wow, Julia, there's a lot there. Um, Unpack it, so- Unpack it. Uh, I'm gonna unpack it like a like a like a pile of Hanukkah presents. It's like it's like eight nights of Hanukkah presents all at once. So we do that on one day. Yeah, I know. It's got sectarian really fast. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we also might, might, you know we also celebrate Christmas too. It's a lot of uh, a lot of presents in that that month of December. So the tension there is that. You know, Julia, you talk about the sort of failure of local institutions uh, in which presumably individual people would have the, the most access to power uh, and the, the, the sort of demand for national government to step in and do something. Uh, and then at the same time that you talk about the sense that people have no power because the Trump administration, the national government, is doing things that you know are are, are fundamentally at odds with you know the, the basic humanity and of a, a lot of individuals in this country, and you know that that is fundamentally a tension, which is like you know if we want the the federal government to do big things. Uh, we have to give up a certain amount of our power. I mean, it's the classic liberty versus security trade-off. And, you know, I, I don't know if we've ever fundamentally resolved that because it, it, it is inherently a tension. You know, we, we want to have local government do things when we feel like we can influence local government and we want to have national government uh, do things when we feel like local government is incompetent, corrupt, out of our power. You know, I, I think here a lot about the Chechnydarian 
East Chat Snyder, um, idea of the expansion of conflict. And it's the losers who always are trying to expand the scope of conflict, hoping that they can win in a different sphere. And you know, we, we've really expanded the scope of conflict to the national level over the course of a century in the U.S. And then, of course, comes the problem that maybe the national government has too much power if we don't like the person who's running the national government. On the other hand, when we like the person who's running the national government and local governments are in the way of that progress, we want the national government to prevail. Um, you know, th there's also a second point about who who is included in the political community. And, you know, this is, a, I think, broadly a story of progress in the history of American democracy is that who is included in the political community has generally expanded uh, over the course of U.S. history, although there has been backsliding and there's backsliding now. But you know, the original franchise was limited to property owning white men over the age of 21 in the 1787 conception of democracy. And you know, it would take a, a, a long time for women, for African-Americans, for 18-year-olds uh, uh, to get the, the franchise. And you know, those struggles for the franchise mean that, that people in power have, have to give up some of that power. And, you know, that, uh, and also it, it increases the pluralism of American democracy, which I, I think is fundamentally a good thing. I think that uh, having the liberty of, of everybody to participate equally is, you know, in fact, a, an essential piece of maintaining a legitimate democracy. And that that is the tension between liberalism and, and democracy at some level is that uh, you know, those who have power can try to use the, the levers of democracy to undermine that fundamental idea of the, the liberty of individual people to participate. But, you know, to me, the the, you know, the, the way you resolve that tension is by ensuring that everybody has, you know, equal power to participate. That doesn't mean equal outcomes because we can never guarantee that the outcomes of democracy are going to be entirely equal, but you know, we can certainly strive for that. And we can create political structures that ensure that everybody's vote counts equally. And not only that everybody's vote counts equally, but that everybody has equal power to try to shape and influence government. And here is, is where I actually think it's incredibly important to think about the, the institutions of elections, uh, because in order for every vote to count equally and, and have equal power, uh, every vote should be equally pivotal and every voter should have equal chance to uh, kind of have representatives who actually represent them. You know, and, and here is where I, I feel like a, uh, a proportional multi-party system actually uh, is is far superior to a, a two-party majoritarian single-member district system because in a two-party system, voters are, are quite limited in the in in the choice of representatives and what they actually represent and bring forward to government, and they're also limited in their ability to cast a pivotal vote because in in our system, 
most voters live in states or districts where their vote doesn't matter. And so, you know, the, the suburban swing voter is far overrepresented. The sort of, you know, Obama, Trump, white working class voter is far overrepresented. People who live in cities, people of color, are, are not considered pivotal because they live in largely predictable districts. Uh, that are highly lopsided. So, you know, I, I think if we think about the treating the, the votes of everyone equally, we need to have a political system in which they can fully have the potential pivotal votes and choose candidates and representatives who uh, give them meaningful choices over competing values and perspectives. Can I ask another question to, that maybe merges this, this more abstract perspective with what I'm kind of trying to get at with the concrete impacts. How do we think a four-party system would be handling this $15 minimum wage thing differently? I should also note that my, my cat has entered has entered the chat here, and it might be like a tangle of wires and fur in a second. And if you don't hear from me again, it's been nice knowing you all. All right. Well, I hope that you survive your tangle with, with your, your feline companion. I think that we would see a uh, $15 minimum wage pass easily in a in a four or five party system. Uh, I think there would probably only be one party that would oppose it. I think as a, I mean, the, the sort of idea of complex majoritarianism that I underlie uh, or that I explain in the, um, in the essay is the idea that you can build flexible majorities that are much more responsive to the underlying public opinion. I mean, what's the, I mean, the polling for $15 minimum wage is what, probably about 70% support it. Uh, but the Re- Republican Party is just going to oppose whatever Democrats put forward because uh, in the two-party system, the goal of Republicans is to make Democrats look like failures and to just reflexively oppose whatever Democrats put forward uh, just to draw a sharp contrast. But, you know, you could I think there's a if the Republican Party as as constituted were to break up into two or three factions, I think, well, let's say break up into into two fractions. I think one of those factions would support the increasing the minimum wage and would thus provide a supermajority uh, vote to support increasing the minimum wage. So, and I really appreciate Julia bringing us back down to earth. I think that's important. Um, I'm going to go back up in the clouds and come right back down because I want to transition from what is democracy to what makes it work. And I want to really emphasize my a reading of your essay, Lee, that, that I have. And I want you to tell me if I'm wrong or that I'm brilliant and you just hadn't thought of it. But this is a very elections-centric essay, right? Which makes sense. It's not a whole book. And I hope you are going to write a book on this. It's a really interesting topic and idea. But when we think about what is democracy, it's basically, and it's not about rule, right? Even going back to the Greek city-states, it's basically no rule. It's where you are both a ruler and ruled. It's you are the citizens are governing themselves, Right. And this is what the Greeks called isonomy. And actually, democracy was given the name democracy by opponents of isonomy because in the archy in it is like monarchy and oligarchy, which implies rule. Um, and what in no rule is essential, you know, 
In our system, to have no rule, you can't have centralization of power, right? You have to have the ability of people or their representatives to participate in the process. And if you have a centralization of power, what that does is it, it makes conditions of no rule impossible. It gives people power to then collapse that space where politics occurs and basically then preside over everybody as a ruler, whether they're a majority of the people, a handful of the people, or just one person. And my, my fear about just focusing on elections here, and, you're, and this, you're not alone. I mean, Mitch McConnell would often say, and I'm sorry, I don't mean to compare you to Mitch McConnell, but he would often say in our Senate lunches, winners who win elections win policy or make policy. And that's certainly true, but there's a lot more to it than that. But what happens is when we shift our focus to only elections, we end up losing sight of the individual's participating in politics in specific venues or their representatives. And we lose sight of the importance of the structures in the venues where they do participate in. And in our system, we have this huge diffusion of power. We have these different electorates. You know, we talk a lot about the national electorate, but no, we have state electorates. We have district electorates. No, no elected official, in my, in my knowledge, in this country is elected with a minority vote right? It's a majority. It's just a question of what the electorate is. And so when we treat all voters equally, to, to pick up on your last piece, and uh, I mean, it, I think implicit in that is this idea of a national electorate, perhaps, where, but then that begins to collapse all these individual spaces that we need for individuals and their elected representatives to participate in the act of negotiation, in the act of adjudicating their disagreements, in the act of politics. And it basically then transforms democracy into a system whereby every few years we go into a voter's booth and we pull the lever and we choose our rulers. And then after that, we just sit it out. And I, don't, I mean, is that a overly critical interpretation of your view? Are you only emphasizing um, elections because you only have space for it? I mean, help me think through this about the difference between elections and what happens in between them and the relationship of democracy to all of our different structures. Because if I look at American dysfunction right now, American political dysfunction, it's because not because Democrats and Republicans are going at each other. It's not like Republicans are all opposed to the minimum wage and the Democrats all support it and they're taking votes to make each other look bad so they can win elections. They're not doing anything. Right. I mean, well, the House is passing a bill, but, you know, they're trying to avoid this in the Senate, at least. And this is like on every single major issue. This idea that Frances Lee, she writes about where the two parties are going to behave in ways that will accentuate the differences. Well, it looks like their rhetoric is doing that, but their actions are actually quite the opposite. And when they do actually act, it looks like, at least in Congress, it's incredibly bipartisan. So I, help me think through this. What, what am I missing? All right. I'm going to I'm going to help you out, James, here. Um, I got my pen out. I'm taking notes. All right. Take some notes. All right. So, all right. So, I mean, you, you start from this sort of like, you know, Greek conception of this, you know, every, everybody collectively deciding this sort of small Athenian city state in which, you know, a very limited number of elites get to participate in democracy. And it lasts for a little while. And, you know, then we have something different in the modern era, which is modern representative mass democracy. Uh, so this is not, you know, we're not we're not Athens. You know, if you want to have a little 
small town community in the mountains, which maybe you have there, um, you know, you can get everybody together as, you know, infinite time to deliberate and discuss because they all have slaves to do all their work, pick their olives and mash them into olive oil. That's that's not our, our modern conception of, of democracy because it's not tenable at a, a national scale. And, you know, maybe you want to say that our country is too big to have a democracy and that's a, a interesting separate argument. Um, but at, at a at a larger scale you know, than an Athenian city-state, you need to have some aspect of, uh, of representativeness in which you elect people to negotiate on your behalf. Uh, and you know, I, mean, I agree that there's a lot of important stuff that happens between elections. I, I think that elections are not the limit of democracy, but I think elections are the central event of modern representative mass democracy in that we have uh, periodic moments in which we all decide who we want to represent us. We uh, hopefully discuss competing policy visions, uh, hopefully discuss issues and, and have disagreements. And, you know, in, in the process, we can have, you know, uh, conversations with our elected officials and tell them why or why they should not support particular proposals. I mean, that happens. But the, the, the version of democracy that you're describing, James, or, or seem to be describing is a is a kind of highly idealized version of democracy that can really only take place in a very small community. So I'm trying to be realistic here with what we can do in the modern world. And, you know, maybe you don't want to call that a democracy. Uh, Maybe democracy itself has kind of lost its meaning because it means so many different things in so many different contexts and the world and the word itself has has evolved in its meaning uh, over time. Can I jump in real quick? Um, Because I want to I want to kind of recenter because I think my question was incredibly rambling and not focused, which is on point for me, I think. But let's think, let's let me press it more directly. What makes democracy in whatever form work? And to me, it seems the ability to participate either through your elected representative or yourself is what democracy is. And then that then determines the things that make it work. And so for me, the things that make it work are Federalism, separation of powers, the House and Senate, different venues, elections, they're all all of these things combined create a situation whereby no one person, group of people or a whole bunch of people can conquer that space, destroy it and then rule. We have no rule. We crack the code. It's very different than what the Greeks did. You're right. Well, and so I guess what I'm asking is, how do you when you and and sorry, Julia, but to Presley a bit um, when we're talking about. I'm trying to draw out your some of the assumptions here about like pivotal voters and treating all voters equally. Like what in your mind, what is it absolutely critical from an institutional standpoint for democracy to work? That there are no permanent winners and no permanent losers. Right. That, that everybody feels like whatever happens, they are not going to be fundamentally marginalized or shut out of power. And that's, you know, that, that's not a, a, I mean, in some ways that's that's the same as your idea that, that there's nobody who rules in the sense that there are no permanent rulers, but there are lots of temporary rulers. And this gets to Julia's point about outcomes is that, you know, if 
I mean, the, 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 what, what you're the, the idealized vision, James, that you seem to have is a, is a formula for total inaction and, and stasis and preservation of the status quo in which, you know, nobody can, you know, if, if nobody, nobody rules, then how does anything get done? Somebody has to rule temporarily. And, and the, the key is that that rule is always temporary, always contingent, and always de- dependent on, on some level of, of performance and output. This is, this is the, the reason that authoritarianism was on the rise in the 1930s, because people looked at democracy and all they saw was, was endless deliberation and bickering that nothing ever got done. There were no, no outcomes. I mean, this is why, uh, to, to Julia's point, that, that many people looked to the national government for action because nothing was happening at the state level. Uh, because certain, I mean, in the idea of, of federalism, I mean, that's a, a, a very, it's a very romantic notion that uh, federalism will somehow protect us. But in the history of the U.S., the states have been bastions of authoritarianism, uh, and it's been the national government that has stepped in and made the states more democratic and more participatory. So I, I think there's a, a, a bit of incoherence in, in how you're viewing things, to be honest, James. Well, and I'm going to turn it over to Julia, but, you know, to your point about federalism, you're right. I mean, it's not that states are good. It's that you have other alternatives to the state. You have the federal level. You have the federal judiciary. You have Congress. You have the president. And then, yes, you have states. And so when 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 one venue is is conquered and someone is ruling because a bunch of segregation has won an election, you have recourse via participation and in, in, in public life in other venues to help kind of rectify that. And I think it's that constant ongoing tension between power centers of groups of people coming together or their representatives. And it's, it's messy and it's, and it's, it's always in tension and it's very un, you know, it's, it's not about, you know, it's about, you know, people kind of compromising essentially, but, but compromise has to have disagreement and it has to emerge out of that struggle. And for that struggle to exist, you have to have a place for it to exist. But I take your points and I, I turn it over to you and then back to Julia. I'm sorry to monopolize so much time here. So I guess I'm going to keep kind of hammering on this $15 minimum wage. It's I should say we're, we're recording on, on February 26th in the, the morning. And so we're recording it uh, the day after the Senate parliamentarian has ruled that the minimum wage um, isn't uh, eligible for being included in the in the reconciliation bill. And so there's lots of, there's lots of conversations about what that means and about Senate procedure and everyone has developed new expertise in areas they didn't know about yesterday, probably including me. And I, I guess my take on this whole debate, you know, I try not to get publicly involved in, in specific policy debates, but my take on this whole thing is that honestly, is that the, the minimum wage is, is so low. And the, the broader point is that, the, there are so many people in this country who are working full time or more than full time and just living in abject poverty. And I can't ignore this reality, even though there are a lot of forces in my life that would would allow me to do so. And I'm just sort of stunned at, well, two thirds of the country. I just I just looked this up. That was the most recent poll I found was about two thirds of the country, something like that, supported Um yeah, it is an overwhelming majority support an increase in the minimum wage. It is also true that the opponents 
of this particular increase in the Senate, it's not totally clear that those are limited to Republicans. So that's a sort of practical dimension. But I also think that the the Francis Lee explanation about how the two parties don't have a lot of incentive to hand wins to one another or cooperate on wins together is, I think this is a useful framework that explains so many things in American politics. And I think it's in play here, but I actually don't think it's a sort of critical causal explanation. It seems to me that there's two other things that are that are really important in keeping us moving in this in this direction of enacting a policy that would bring, you know, bring work and compensation at least a little more into line um, and enact this popular policy. And it has to do with the structure of that opinion. Right. It has to do with who opposes it. And some of it is concentrated economic interests who are who are disproportionately influential. I know I'm probably I'm probably sounding very much like this sort of the Bernie Sanders people here, and this is this is an un- unusual territory for me. But I think on this issue that they're right that there is concentrated economic power, and that that people with a there's people who have an enormous amount of money who also have an enormous amount of political influence, and that none of these electoral arrangements are, I think, totally resistant to that, and that that might actually exist in some ways prior to some of these specific electoral arrangements, is how do we structure that, you know, who has influence in between, in between elections, or who has influence during elections? The other piece of this that I see, and this, I really don't want to veer into what's the matter with Kansas territory, and I'm very cautious about explanations that suggest that people are being manipulated into opinions that undermine their own economic interests. I don't think that's a great way to frame this. But I do think, on the other hand, that there are an awful lot of people in this country who are, how to say this, right, who, you know, I'm thinking specifically, I guess, of Joe Manchin's constituents, right? There's a very high poverty state. And yet Manchin, I get the cultural conservatism, I get that that's something that's coming out of his state, but I'm confused on the economic conservatism. And I think there are a lot of people who are increasingly vulnerable to misinformation or vulnerable to, to information or appeals that suggest that if government does things, it's going to go to the wrong people and be taken away from you and make your life even worse. And the fact that for a lot of people, mostly government action and changes in, in society and politics have made their life lives worse. It's hard for them, I think, to to it's rational for them to imagine that things might make their lives worse. So I think the information environment, the way people are politicized, and also the way in which people with disproportionate amounts of resources influence politics, I think all of those are shaped by the electoral environment, but not not fundamentally, maybe. I think this is the question I have is kind of like how do we how do we tease out those relationships? And I get that I get that two party political competition exacerbates some of the the manipulation phenomenon and and you know that's been really well documented with a lot of excellent scholarship, including yours, Lee. But at the same time, we also know that 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 same kind of information that sa- those same kinds of appeals were happening during the kind of James McGregor Burns period of four party democracy. Also, they they didn't. They didn't happen when the parties sorted ideologically. So that's, I guess that's my question is how do we square these electoral arrangements that shape political conflict with this sort of forces of power and forces of information manipulation that that seemingly are really good at adjusting to all different kinds of, of institutional arrangements?
Well, now, now you're taking me back to my previous book, The Business of America is Lobbying, uh, in which I, I fretted considerably over the power that concentrated economic interests had over our policymaking process. And yes, that is a tremendous problem that the, I mean, one of the reasons why uh, lawmakers in Washington and, and state uh, legislatures are often at odds with public opinion, particularly on economic issues, is because they are overwhelmed with uh, both campaign contributions and analysis from concentrated economic interests who benefit from things like a lower minimum wage. So their information environment is incredibly distorted. Uh, And yes, that that is a tremendous problem. I, I think there are ways in which in which we can encounter that I, I definitely support public funding of elections and i think that that seems like an idea whose time has long been overdue uh it's the norm among most democracies to have public funding of elections uh and you know increasing uh, congressional capacity so that lawmakers and their staff are not overly dependent on you know reports from industry groups uh, that tell them how increasing the minimum wage is somehow going to undermine the entire economy and make them afraid of that. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know what Joe Manchin is thinking exactly, but you know, I, I do know that there is tremendous pressure. Uh, from these concentrated economic interests. And, and that's, I mean, that's a problem in democracies everywhere uh, that economic, concentrated economic interests have disproportionate power. Uh, but I think it, it is tremendously exacerbated by the way in which uh, private money, both through lobbying and campaign contributions, distorts the information environment of U.S. lawmakers. Um you know, as for the kind of way in the the what's the matter with Kansas problem in which, you know, uh, people who are kind of downscale economically but culturally conservative have to decide whether to support the Democratic Party that uh, it is at odds with them on cultural issues, but maybe more in line with them on economic issues or a Republican Party that's more in line with them on cultural identity issues, uh, but, you know, at odds with them on economic issues, you know, creates a a tremendous challenge. And I mean, we had uh, Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson uh, on our podcast uh, last year to talk about their book, Let Them Eat Tweets, uh, which I think gets into uh, a lot of these uh, issues, you know, which they, I, I think, quite convincingly argue that the the conservative party, the Republican Party, faces the conservative dilemma, which is that how do you uh, win elections when you're the party of the rich and you win elections as the party of the rich by uh, turning up the knob on cultural and identity questions. Uh, but that the ability to do that is much, much greater in a two-party system in which voters ha- are forced to have one of two choices uh, that, you know, either either vote on your cultural national identity or your economic interests. And as we know from a lot of social psychology research, the, the, the group interests, the identity interests are, are much more emotional uh, and closer to people's self-conceptions. And they many people will, will vote on that. 
So anyway, all right. So moving on. I want to, Lee, I want to ask you a last question and, and thank you. I've, I've really enjoyed this essay and I think our listeners will enjoy it as well and we'll have it in the show notes. And I think it's really gotten, it's gotten my gears turning in my head. But as I see it, you know, I think I approach everything through the lens of conflict, political conflict, as opposed to violent conflict. And when I read, one of the reasons why I'm so suspicious of election-centric uh, views of, of politics is because it, it rapidly kind of moves us towards this kind of production-oriented view of politics, where the government's one big factory and we have these widgets that we're building. And we are in academia and in the media and elsewhere, we're very prone to this because it, it helps us to explain the world, to cast, you know, for instance, let's just use legislators as craftsmen who are basically doing something, building a product according to a blueprint that's designed by someone else in another place in time, right? And but that that's not how it, it works. It's actually quite messy. And conflict is the secret sauce. The, and you can't have ambition, counteract ambition without conflict. You can't have compromise without conflict. And to have that conflict play out, you need a place and you need people. And one of the things that keeps jumping out at me is that you know Bertram Gross, a phenomenal scholar of Congress in the 50s, scholar practitioner, wrote a book called The Legislative Struggle. He says, Compromise emerges out of the legislative struggle of fighting, right? He says that the legislative process is, quote, one of the methods of untying the Gordian knots created by the growing complexities of a highly organized capitalistic society, capitalist society. And then even if we, th it's not just gross. I mean, Derrida, he says that negotiation is a knot. It's, and we, you basically untie it and retie it. And you're constantly going backwards and forwards. And this is Madison in Federalist 10 when he's saying the regulation of these various and interfering interests involves the spirit of party and faction and the necessary and ordinary operations of government, right? Basically, the process of disagreeing inside places like Congress or any other kind of institution we have in between elections makes agreements easier to reach. It informs our horizons. It broadens our understanding. And you can't really have that. And it's hard to get legitimacy of outcomes as well when there isn't this um, active process that plays out in between elections. And so I guess my question is, you know, when I read simple majoritarianism, great leaderism, complex majoritarianism and elitocracy, I see all and you and you make this point in the piece. They're all they all have a very um, implicit view of conflict. You write about conflict management, but it, it it's almost it strikes me as a very negative view of conflict. The conflict is something that makes politics not work. And I am I wrong on that? Or, or is that what you think? I mean, it makes sense. You can't have conflict on a factory floor. But our elected representatives aren't building Fords, right? They're, they're actually designing the blueprint and then maybe building the Ford too at the same time. It's an imperfect analogy, I know. But I'm gonna turn it over to you. I mean, it may, we need to have another episode on this because this is a big, big issue. Um, yeah, and, and I'll let you bring it home. All right. Well, I mean, look, James, I, th I think we, we agree on that. And, and I think that, that that is why I I land on the complex majoritarian view of liberal democracy, because what is inherent in that, that, that vision is that elections are only about who goes to Congress. Uh, they, they're not designed to provide mandates, uh, but instead are designed to send 
representatives who then will, in fact, negotiate in a in a fluid, unpredictable way, uh, just as you hope they would, as Madison hoped they would, as many theorists of democracy uh, hoped they would. So, you know, I think the, the and this this is actually a, a a really key point of of the essay is the difference between simple majoritarianism which is basically, uh, you know, the idea of responsible party government in which, you know, you send parties to Congress and they and they have have mandates. And so that in that case, elections are determinative and elections are the central focus. Uh, and that that is the, the fundamental uh, space in which politics happens is at elections. But that is a function only of a uh, or that I should say that can only work in a two party system. That to me, the value of a multi-party system is that you you can't depend overly on elections as mandates because you're sending representatives to build coalitions and to to bargain with each other in a, a legislature. So uh, you know, I think you and I are, are largely aligned on that view. I, I so I, it seems like we we ought to join forces and support multi-party democracy because that's. Uh, the vision of governing that creates potential for unpredictability and chaos. And, you know, as for conflict, you know, I, 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 I agree with you that conflict is central to democracy, but at, at some level, you know, conflicts also have to be resolved so that new conflicts can emerge, right? I mean, the, the problem is if the conflicts are, are the same for an extended period of time, they grow deeper and deeper and harder and harder to resolve. So you need to constantly be resolving some conflicts in order to have new conflicts so that the allies and enemies can change. Uh, the, the key to sustaining liberal democracy is that there are no permanent allies and there are no permanent enemies. And inherent in that uh, view is that the conflicts are ever shifting. So it's not that conflict is inherently uh, good or bad. I think conflict is just a, a feature of democracy because in order to have elections, we have to have conflicts because we have to have disagreements. But uh, if, if we let particular conflicts linger for too long and become too entrenched and too divisive, then they become impossible to resolve, uh, you know, which is why I think complex majoritarianism and, and particularly the multi-party democracy version of that complex majoritarianism is the one vision of liberal democracy uh, that can find the right balance between uh, having elections that are, are productive, but also governing in between those elections that is also productive. Well, we'll leave it at that. We'll have to come back to this, this topic, um, but I will just close on the Immortal words of the Beastie Boys, you have to fight for your right to party. So thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.